is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. The roads are getting cleared, but people are still stuck up in the San Bernardino Mountains. We'll go in-depth into the recovery efforts and details about bodies that have been found. Scammers have already found a way to use artificial intelligence to steal more of your money. We'll go in-depth into what they're doing. More and more health clinics are opening in Southern California and elsewhere to give patients a party drug. But we start with the mountains and the snow. With us is San Bernardino County Sheriff Shannon Dykus. Sheriff, thanks for being with us. Robin Charles, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So uh, let's begin right off the, the bat because we want to make sure that, that rumors don't grow out of control. So we have heard about, uh, unfortunately, uh, some people who have died up in that area in the mountains. Can you tell us uh, what the circumstances were and whether or not it had anything to do, the deaths, that is, with this particular storm? Absolutely. And I'm very glad to address this. There's a lot of misinformation, particularly out on social media right now. So when we talk about deaths across all of our mountain areas, that's ranging from Big Bear all the way to Wrightwood, and I'll kind of break this down by area. We've had a total of, it it looks like we've had a total of 11 deaths. Those deaths, none of them other than one is related to the storm, which was a traffic accident. The majority of the deaths that are reported are coming from Big Bear, which occurred at Big Bear Hospital, which is completely normal, and they're all medically related. We did have one death in the city of Wrightwood. And then the area where we're hearing from a lot of our citizens that, you know, still need to be rescued or in some of these outer areas, the deaths that have occurred in that area that have been reported to us and have gone through the coroner's office, total five, but this is including the communities of Lake Arrowhead, Crestline, Arrowbear, and Valley of Enchantment. All of those deaths are all deaths related to hospice situations where mortuaries have, ha- have been involved. I think that part of this spun out very early on because mortuaries weren't able to respond to a couple of hospice deaths, and it took us a couple of days to get up there and to help clear those bodies. But there is no incidence of mass numbers of deceased persons up in our mountains right now that we're aware of. I know you received a report from a citizen. That citizen did report a neighbor's house that did get flattened based on the storm, but we made contact with that neighbor who was perfectly fine and has been transported off the mountain, and that occurred on 3-4. So we're okay. trying to so that, that, that's good to know, but I, I just want to clarify one thing and make sure that, that I'm understanding sure. what you're saying correctly. So you're saying that of the deaths recorded thus far, I think you said only one is actually related to the storm, and that was the traffic accident? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's it. There are no mass fatalities or any of the things that we're seeing on the Internet right now. That is not the case. And if those people that are saying that, they have not called 911 and made that report. And we've responded to every 911 call. I think it's important to know that that system, the 911 system, has never went down. So if people need help, we can certainly get them help. All right. So some citizens are obviously under a lot of stress right now, and some are complaining that the response has been lackluster, to say the least. Maybe that's charitable to the way they would describe it. What message would you like to send to the citizens and the residents in the area? Sure. Number one, it's managing perspective. So as government, we're trying to take care of the masses, getting power back, getting people taken care of, getting access. We opened up the area last night, got all those citizens in didn't have any any problems traffic related or anything like that. 
I believe a lot of the things going on the internet are individual opinions and certainly not factual. And I'm going to work with them. Now, I'm not saying we're overly confident we aren't going to encounter things as we continue to contact people and that some of these deaths that may be storm-related will change. But as of right now, that is not the case and does not appear to be the truth. Okay, let me move on to a different topic, though, uh, uh, Sheriff. Uh, all sure. the counties here, San Bernardino, Los Angeles, there, there are mutual aid packs, right, uh, among all the counties. So I'm curious, how much help are you getting? How many people do you have from L.A. County, from, from anywhere else, for that matter, with boots on the ground to help this this really difficult effort, and nobody denies that, to, to help people and to get uh, uh, medicines and food to those who need it. How many? Sure. So right now we're estimating we have between 500 and uh, 800 firefighters on the ground, and I have got numerous deputies, probably about 50 that have been involved in this effort and that are on the ground reintegrating them, and also my search and rescue volunteers, which those volunteers, I have the capacity to call in approximately 2,000 of those folks. Right now, we're only using about 60 of those folks. But if I understand what you're saying, though, you're talking about people who are from from San Bernardino County, right? What I'm asking about is, are you getting help from neighboring counties? Do you have boots on the ground with that kind of help, and if you don't, why not? Yeah, no, we, we don't have that on the ground. I've been in contact with Sheriff Luna in L.A., who has offered help. We just don't need that help right now in terms of getting it up there in reference to access. Remember, we're still working with utility companies and uh, blocking those roads off and getting all of our fire personnel in and out there, and all of our volunteers are handling these calls. I have extensive amount of air assets, and we just haven't needed that help. What's exacerbating this is an LASO commander is suggesting that we need to call him in, and we just haven't needed that mutual aid help yet. Okay, but, but, forgive me, but forgive me, Sheriff. Uh, you know, as you know, you, you do have residents there, and they've been quite vocal about it, that, that feel rightly or wrongly that there isn't enough help, despite what you're saying, that there just isn't enough help on the ground. So why would it not be advantageous for you to uh, exercise that, that mutual aid compact? And if you've been in touch, as you said you have, with Sheriff Luna in, in L.A. County, why not avail yourself of the services that they can offer, if for no other reason, perhaps, that it would make the residents there feel better? Well, Robert, the county has done that in a number of other areas with citizens, and they're coordinating that, and we're using them in a number of areas. It's just you got to think the mountains and the roadways, there's only so much help and so many people we can cram into those areas, and that's the reason we haven't needed those resources. We're in the process of doing reverse 911s, rechecking on all the people that are out there. And again, if anybody has any issue related to life, or these things that are going on. We have a very robust food network system and a number of things out there. I, I understand people are getting on the internet and, and that are frustrated, but we've reintegrated the community last night. We are not hearing that on the ground. I think these are people that are getting onto the internet and are just frustrated and, and relaying things that really aren't actually going on to this point. There are tons of resources up there. We will be flowing people in and out of there as we continue to clear those roads and, and get them out there. We are not afraid to ask for help, and a number of assets are certainly available at our beck and call. We're just trying to manage this and be very strategic about this in terms of uh, getting things open and taking care of people. All right. Thank you so much. We'll let you get back to work. Uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff Shannon Dykus. We now move on on in-depth to scammers going high-tech with AI, artificial intelligence. 
Eva Velasquez is the chief executive of the Identity Theft Resource Center. Eva, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So I understand that that the the latest thing, if you want to call it latest, is is what people who can use AI to uh, simulate somebody's voice so that, for example, they could make a call to uh, someone's grandmother, for example, and pretend they're, they're the grandchild who needs money or help using a voice that the grandmother would think is the grandchild. Is that right? That That's true. And it's not exactly new. This has actually been around for a couple of years. But because of the progress in technology, we're seeing a lot more of the these types of programs. Uh, Microsoft has Valley, for example. And so I think we're we're paying a lot more attention to it right now. But it has been around for a couple of years. And is there a way that you can tell that uh, you're listening to an AI voice call you and pretend to be somebody else? Not an easily detectable one. Uh, It's not going to be a perfect rendition. Audio quality might not be superior, but the the real hook that the scammers use is distress. If if you hear a voice that sounds close enough to a loved one and they're in distress, that is going to put you, you know, key up your emotions. And so you're going to start making uh, decisions based on your emotions rather than logic. So there really is no good way to tell on the face of it. We, we advise people differently, not just to detect that it's a scam. So a warning sign would be urgency. Uh, someone is really, really urgent. That's very much like phishing emails you get, like your account's going to be suspended immediately unless you respond right now. Or when people call up trying to get money from you, you have to respond right now or we're sending the police to your house. They'll be there in one minute. So that's yes. that's a red flag, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You can see that is one of the favorite tools in the scammer's arsenal is creating that sense of urgency so that you have to react right away. The the technology, as you mentioned, because it has become so ubiquitous and is improving, I, I mean, where does this lead to? Because there is going to come a point if we're not perhaps there almost already when it is going to be impossible for even experts to tell the difference, right? It's going to create a lot of challenges for us because the old adage of, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, not necessarily something we can rely on anymore. And the same thing with with voice cloning. It's going to get so good that it will be practically uh, undetectable that it's a fake. So our advice to people remains the same as it's as it's really always been, and that's go to the source. If you didn't initiate the contact, go to the source. And what I mean by that is simply if, if you get a call from a number that is not known to you and it's purporting to be your grandson, your spouse, a, a sibling, and they're in distress asking for money and that there's always a money ask, um, then I say pick up your another phone. Uh, call them on the other line, have another person in the house, call on another phone and call that person's known number. Uh, We had a call come into our contact center where this just happened. Someone thought they were talking to their daughter. She was saying she had been arrested and she needed bail money. And they put a, a marshal on the phone and it was the mom that was on the phone. And the dad just picked up his cell phone and called his daughter and she answered and she said, no, I'm fine. And, and so that, but that thought of, I'm going to verify this, I'm going to go right to the source, that's what we really want people to remember. So a good rule of thumb is zero trust. 
Yes. That's what they That's what they tell us when they give us uh, corporate uh, trainings about trusting uh, phishing yeah. emails. Zero trust. Start there and you'll be fine. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Eva Velasquez, uh, Chief Executive of the Identity Theft Resource Center. You know, when I get those corporate emails, I, yeah. I, I don't open them because I don't trust them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <So> zero trust. <laughs> zero, I don't trust that one either. Zero trust. Right now, though, uh, Mexico says... Two of the four kidnapped Americans, as we mentioned before, in that border town south of Texas have been found dead. The others are alive, although one is injured. And a relative says they all traveled together in order to escort one of them who was getting a tummy tuck in Mexico. Now, the thing is that traveling to Mexico, Americans traveling to Mexico for medical and dental procedures is a rather common Occurrence and and some people may not realize that if they live especially in other parts of the U.S. Uh, that that people who live close to the Mexican border, as we do in Southern California, <clears throat> excuse me, or um, you know Texas, uh, Arizona, you know, within a relatively short driving period, that there's a whole industry for people to go and travel into Mexico because they can get medical and dental procedures a lot cheaper there than here. And they often can buy prescription drugs that, especially if they don't have good insurance policies, are a whole lot cheaper there than here. And we're waiting to to hear, and hopefully we'll we'll, uh, establish some contact with him, uh, Joseph Woodman, who is the CEO of Patients Beyond Borders. But but until then, um, it it is, in a way, not surprising. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that two people died, of course, but it's not surprising why they went there. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on for a long time. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a documentary about the health care system in the United States. And this was way back in the run up to Obamacare getting passed. Right. And uh, so this is how long it's been going on and longer than that. And as you mentioned in your uh, tease to this segment a little while ago, you used the word indictment. And some feel this is an indictment of the American health care system because of or insurance, even if you have insurance, some things wind up not getting covered that should be, but a lot of people don't have insurance or they don't have good insurance. And it begs the question as to why are these medical procedures so much cheaper in Mexico and why are medicines so much cheaper in Mexico? Now, in this particular case, it was a it was an elective type thing, but right. a lot of people are going over for cancer drugs, for other treatments that are life-saving and life-necessary. We are now joined by Jonathan, I think it is Adel. Do I have your last name right, Jonathan? Edelheit. Edelheit. Okay, thank you. Uh, and you are co-founder and chairman of Global Healthcare Resources. Thanks for, for jumping in with us. I appreciate it. So uh, I don't know how much of the conversation you heard between Rob and me, but uh, we're talking, of course, about those four Americans that go across the border into Mexico, two unfortunately killed by apparent members of a drug cartel. But they went there uh, because one of them wanted to get a, a cheaper surgical procedure in Mexico than would have been available to that person, apparently, uh, here in the U.S. And this is a huge business, isn't it, uh, To uh, for Americans to travel across the Mexican border for medicines, for dental, for surgery? It, it's a very big business. It's, we, you know, we estimate that about a million Americans cross the border every year into Mexico to, to receive those health care services, dental, and as you said, the pharmaceutical drugs also. Why is it so much cheaper to go to Mexico for some of these things, uh, uh, procedures as well as medicines? 
I think the number one reason is uh, profit, meaning uh, we're subsidizing everyone's profits and the rest of the world for our health care. Um, you know, that's really the only reason is why should a medication that costs $90,000 in the U.S. cost $1,000 in Latin America? Uh, you know, it doesn't really make sense, but unfortunately, prices are very high. And, you know, a lot of people just can't afford it or don't want to spend the money. You know, if I had a family member I took to Costa Rica where they were being charged here in Palm Beach, uh, Florida, $60,000 for veneers, where they got it from the top dentist in Costa Rica for 15000 and the actual dental material was better than what they would actually get and would last longer here in the U.S. So there's a huge price difference. And the reality is we've also outsourced our health care here. Um, I know, especially here in Florida, if I go to any hospital, any doctor practice, two-thirds of the doctors went to medical school overseas, practiced overseas, and now have come to the U.S. to practice care. So we, we're already used to that. So, Jonathan, when I said earlier, and, and, and Rob mentioned it again, I, I said that, that what happened to these four, uh, because they went for medical procedure and, and also, I think, for cheaper uh, prescription drugs as well, it, it was an indictment. And that was the word I think I used, right, Rob? Yeah, indictment of our, the U.S. healthcare system. That wasn't too strong a word, was it? Not, not at all. I think, um, you know, we're very in tune to what goes on here in the U.S. healthcare system, and it's really a money grab. You know, everyone's looking at how they can make as much money as possible off of us as individuals, off of insurance. And so no one's actually trying to lower costs, and that's the main driver of why people are traveling. And what's unfortunate is if people choose to travel to an unsafe destination – or to you know a clinic or hospital that maybe doesn't have quality or work through an agency that's not reputable, um, you know because we don't like I, I'm also the, the CEO of the Medical Tourism Association and we don't advise people to like go to places where the Department of State has travel warnings. You know it's very important that people go to safe locations and safe practices so they don't you know experience things like this. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Jonathan Edelheit, co-founder, chairman, Global Healthcare Resources. Still ahead, uh, did you know that there are medical clinics in L.A. where you can legally take a party drug? We're going to explain why and who's doing it. Right now, though, the Justice Department has sued to block the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. The feds say it'll further reduce competition, uh, though JetBlue says it's going to help make things more competitive. Uh, Diana Moss is president of the American Antitrust Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be on. So it feels like because we have seen so many airline mergers over the last few years that now all of a sudden the feds are like, we're going to draw the line here this far, no further. Uh, Is that what's happening? Are they saying that that this merger is a bridge too far? I think that's exactly what's going on. Uh, You know, we have a more progressive, aggressive set of antitrust enforcers uh, under the Biden DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission. I think this very strong complaint that was issued today really signals that the government isn't going to tolerate more consolidation and that we've kind of hit the wall with a very small number of carriers and very little choice for consumers. Yeah, I was going to say, to some degree, is this a, a an attempt, although perhaps too little and too late, to, at least in part, undo 
the legacy of the past, what, quarter of a century where the government has allowed, under different administrations, but has allowed airlines to consolidate so that we are down basically to what are the majors, you know, United, American, Delta, uh, Southwest, I suppose. Uh, and that has not been a very good thing, many people would argue anyway, for consumers. Right. And and also not for airline workforces either. We do a lot of work with pilots and, you know, they're they're being harmed by a lot of uh, buyer power working for larger, more powerful airlines. So I think you're right. We've had uh, six major mergers over the last 17 years. That's a lot of consolidation. We're down to a really cozy oligopoly of just a few legacy carriers and, you know, a, a, a really dwindling fringe of low cost carriers and eliminating spirit through uh, this acquisition by JetBlue would really take out the, uh, one of the two major low-cost carriers. So putting a stop to these mergers by moving to block them uh, is appears to be the strategy. And it's it's one step short of, of actually going back and unwinding mergers uh, through some sort of, uh, you know, breakup of, um, of past consummated deals. At the risk of uh, speaking for them, you know, JetBlue uh, has said that, uh, as, as companies usually do when they want to merge, that, that merging would make things more competitive. But at the risk of making an argument for them, uh, one could say that, well, these smaller airlines have to compete against these big airlines that have already merged. They're huge now, and so the smaller airlines don't get enough of the pie left over, and so they have to merge with another smaller airline so they can get more pie and stay in business. Uh, I'm going to assume that you probably think that is not a valid argument. And if it's not, why not? It is not a valid argument for sure. Uh, but it's a really common argument. Uh, carriers come in and they say, look, we need to merge to get bigger so we can be better competitors against our bigger rivals. And, you know, that's not an argument or a justification for merger that is is going to get uh, make any headway in a federal court where these cases are litigated. And, you know, the logical end to that that theory that we got to get bigger to compete better is that we end up with two major airlines in the United States at some point down the road. That's uh, that's, you know, really bad for consumers and and also for labor as well. So I don't think that's a, a you know, that's not going to be a convincing argument that the airlines would make. You did mention in passing that this is perhaps one stop short, although a major one short, of actually unraveling some of the uh, mergers of the past, uh, I think you said, 17 years. Do you see that, though, as an actual possibility? Yeah, you know, I, I don't see that, not at least at this stage. I think um, uh, you mentioned earlier we've we've really had a, a whole swath of unobstructed consolidation. The government has, you know, challenged deals, but they've also settled them with slot divestitures and gate divestitures. This is... Uh, this is different uh, with JetBlue and Spirit. The government is moving to block this deal. And so it will be up to the companies whether they end up in federal court challenging um, challenging the government. The next step up from that is for the government to bring cases to break up firms, whether that's a monopolization case, like we're trying to uh, encourage the government to do in Live Nation Ticketmaster, um, or another type of antitrust case. I don't see that happening right now. I see more... Uh, concerted efforts for the government to say no to any further consolidation. All right. Thank you so much. Dinah Moss, president of the American Antitrust Institute. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. U.S. officials say it's happening again and again. There are two more recalls of eye drops. 
due to contamination risk that could lead to serious injury or vision problems. One is uh, purely soothing, 15%. The other recall has to do with prescription eye drops from Apotex. With us to try to explain what's going on is Dr. Benjamin Burt, who's an ophthalmologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center that's in Fountain Valley. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me on. So people have been using eye drops for quite some time, both prescription types and, of course, over-the-counter. Why is it that we are in just the past two months, this is now one, two, three, I think the fourth or maybe fifth eye drop, over-the-counter eye drop, except one is a prescription, right, uh, that has been recalled and from several different companies now. That seems weird. Yes, it does. And, you know, this is not something that we are used to seeing on a regular basis, certainly with not this degree of frequency. Uh, I mean, the drops that were recalled this time, again, similar to the previous recalls, the purely soothing 15% MSM drop that was mostly sold online through e-commerce retailers. So these tend to be potentially smaller companies than most of the other pharmaceutical manufacturers. I don't know if that's necessarily playing a role, but certainly when we're trying to reduce the risk of non-sterility or reduce the risk of contamination, we're not seeing that happen with the big companies the big pharmaceutical companies that manufacture similar drops. Is this a lack of quality control or is this accidental? I think that we, the hope is certainly that this is going to be something accidental. Certainly with the Apotex recall, they found that it was actually the plastic of the bottles themselves, the cap that is supposed to screw onto the top to maintain the sterility. They were finding little cracks in it that may reduce the the sterility and increase the risk of contamination. So that's mostly being done due to an abundance of caution. Um, With these two particular recalls, there haven't been any injuries or infections reported, which is what we saw with the Esricare recall last month. So how does a patient know? I mean, for example, I've used eye drops uh, forever. I mean, I used to wear contact lenses. I used eye drops. I still use uh, over-the-counter ones when my eyes get dry. Uh, How does somebody know that it's safe to use something that would seem to be so benign as uh, an eye drop? And they all have these, like, you know, nice, like, soothing, calming, refreshing, you know, have all these names that make it sound as if what could possibly go wrong until something goes wrong. Right. And I think certainly if you put an eye drop in the eye and you are not getting the soothing response and you're actually getting more redness or more irritation, that certainly is going to be a drop that you want to discontinue right away. Just like with any other products that that you buy that need to be sterile, you want to make sure that all of the safety seals are in place in the packaging so that there's no risk of uh, external contamination after it's been manufactured. But the difficulty here is that some of these are losing their sterility before they're being put in the packaging themselves. And again, the best way to try to avoid that is make sure that you're using very well-known, well-respected brands that have have not had these types of issues. I was going to ask you best practices when you go to the store, drugstore, grocery store, wherever you buy eye drop products. Look for the bigger brands and make sure the packaging is secure, right? 
100%. Yeah, you'll see the the bigger brands will certainly be there. And again, the ones that are going to be able to have the shelf space at the, the bigger retailers, those are automatically going to be the bigger brands. But if there's ever any questions about it, it's always good to do a quick internet search and just make sure that you can find a, a reputable website for the, the company itself. Now, of course, of course, there's a secondary and perhaps the most important problem of all of this, uh, which is at least with the, the uh, first set of drops that were recalled uh, a few weeks ago. The problem was not only were the drops contaminated, but the bacterial infections were such that they were highly resistant to the commonly used antibiotics so that what would have and should have been at most a minor annoyance, a slight infection, you take some other drops and get rid of it, in some cases actually led to one person's death. Correct. And that particular contaminant that was in that eye drop was the Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a very aggressive pathologic bacteria. So in, in these most recent recalls, they're mostly describing non-sterility. They're not saying that they have a bacterial contaminant with them. So the severity with this should be less than there was with the Esri care with that Pseudomonas contaminant. All right. Thank you. That's uh, ophthalmologist Dr. Benjamin Burt. When we come back, there are some people who are taking party drugs and it's legal. Ketamine gets its notoriety as a party drug. It's often called Special K, and it does tend to have hallucinogenic effects on users. But here's the thing that separates it from another party drug, uh, like, uh, say, for example, ecstasy. Uh, This one is legal. In fact, there have been a growing number of clinics over the years that use ketamine to treat mental health issues. And they're here in Southern California. With us is May uh, Fakriazdi. I oh my gosh! I hope I I did I get that even anywhere near correct. Yeah, that was actually really good. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, clinic manager at Field Trip Health in Santa Monica. Also, uh, Jody Green, a psychedelics industry attorney. Much easier to pronounce that name. Thank you. It is very much so. So the question is. Uh, I have been following news stories for a while about these types of drugs that were formerly looked down upon as like, well, that's a party drug, that's hallucinogenic. And I've been reading about a lot of success in testing some of these, thinking outside of the box and helping people to have mental health issues like uh, severe anxiety or PTSD. Is that what this is about? Does ketamine help with that? And I'll start with uh, you, May. Uh, How does ketamine help with mental health issues? Yeah, I think short answer, yes. Um, ketamine is is very effective in helping in various mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OT, uh, OCD, or PTSD, um, and many others. It um, increases neuroplasticity in the brain, and so it allows individuals who have kind of been stuck in ruminative patterns to create new patterns and new connections uh, in the brain so that they're able to have new perspectives and insights on uh, on their own lives um, and at the world at large. Um, so it works as an antidepressant. It's anti-inflammatory. It can be used as a pain reliever. So there's many different pathways that um, it can be beneficial for. Jody, I'm fascinated by your your title description, psychedelics industry attorney. I actually have never heard of that before. Why does the psychedelic industry need an attorney? 
Well, good question. Um, I think it's very similar to how the cannabis industry developed, where the regulations governing the use of psychedelics, which are in large part controlled substances under the uh, Schedule One controlled substances under the uh, Controlled Substances Act, um, make it very complicated for businesses to operate within the regulatory structure because state laws develop that might conflict with federal law, and there are questions about how to um, create a functional business within the space. So it does require some specialized expertise and nuance. And so we apply a lot of the, the learnings that we've uh, gleaned from working with companies operating in the cannabis space to the psychedelics ecosystem as it develops as well. I want to go back to you, May, uh, for this question. Back in the 60s, we had musicians, authors, artists who would create these great works of art. And sometimes they would brag that, well, it was because LSD opened my mind and I saw things in a new way. And we were just talking a minute ago. The description was used helping people see things in a new way. And that's what's helping with their mental health problems. Now, we're not talking about high doses of some of these hallucinogenic drugs. But isn't that the same process that helped people see life in a new way and that helped them look at their problems in a new way and maybe help calm some of those issues down? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, psychedelics in general, the word psychedelic means mind manifesting. And so um, a lot, you know, all of these psychedelics, whether it's ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, um, they put us into a high entropy state, which allows us to tap into that sense of creativity, um, of, of that mind manifesting, expansive kind of experience. Um, and it also affords people the opportunity to have very mystical experiences. Um, so very profound experiences that transcend kind of time and space. Um, it can often be spiritual, can very often be unifying and, and connecting um, in this world and beyond. And so, um, yeah, I definitely think there's something to be said about uh, psychedelics, uh, assisting in that kind of creative process. Jody, are are the uh, the treatments and the, the use of these psychedelics to treat mental health issues, is that something that's happening across the country or is it sort of just here in California? Are we in the, the vanguard, so to speak? Because, you know, there are a lot of people in other parts of the country who kind of think, oh, California is a bunch of weird people. <laughs> You're right. And I'm from the Midwest. And so when I go home and I talk to people about what I do, I, I definitely get that question and sometimes some odd stares, but I'm happy to evangelize for this um, and to preach that, in fact, California is not alone. Uh, there are thousands of clinical studies uh, over the years regarding the use of a variety of different types of psychedelics for mental health and other things, including anti-inflammatory research, which is really interesting. Um, and so there are um, institutions at some of the greatest um, universities in the country, Johns Hopkins, uh, Harvard, uh, to name a couple, um, uh, that are focusing specifically on legalization issues and um, science regarding psychedelics. We're really in a renaissance period right now. Now, one pushback that uh, people are going to get on this is the fact that they're afraid that if we start normalizing using some of these hallucinogenic or psychedelic drugs to treat mental health issues. And while that may be beneficial, that might open the door to more abuse of the drugs because some drugs were created for good purposes and they turned around to be abused and to cause death and and family breakups and, and uh, 
crime problems, what have you. Is there a worry about if you if we normalize using these to help people that that will happen again? Well, I think that that is a concern, and that's why um, the FDA uh, trials process is proceeding with caution. And for the most part, the majority of drugs that are being used for these purposes are being prescribed or will be prescribed in conjunction with psychotherapy. Um, so it won't be a take-home model where you, you know, do it at home, um, which could give rise to potential abuse. Um, I think the other thing that we have to remember, too, is that many psychedelic experiences are not the sort of thing that you want to abuse. Um, they often are difficult experiences, um, which is uh, why it's, you know, sort of counter to the concept of uh, having a high potential for abuse, which puts them on Schedule 1, perhaps unwittingly. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Jody Green, a psychedelics industry attorney. Also, uh, May uh, Fact Riazdi, a clinic manager at Field Trip Health in Santa Monica. It's interesting. And I think the people who were experimenting with all this in the 60s, you know, like the Timothy Leary types, mm-hmm. uh, would be amazed that there is an industry, a psychedelic yeah. <laughs> industry. It's business now. Yeah. Isn't it always? That's the way it goes. This is America, after all. That's it for KNX In Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.